Hey guys, it's another Overthinking Movies. I'm your Overthinking host, Brandon Hain, of course. And we've got another review discussion thing of a new release. This time it's Spider-Man No Way Home. I have Overthinking co-host Alex Yulaki along with me for this discussion. As it's fair to say, both him and I are pretty big fans of Spider-Man. We've both seen all the movies. Okay, well, I, I showed him Amazing Spider-Man 2 against his will. But we've seen all the movies. And it's fair to say we were pretty excited for this, especially after how great the last two Tom Holland Spider-Man films were. So as usual, we're going to give our general thoughts and recommendations before diving into the spoilers and the details of the film itself. And wow, <laughs> big shock. Hey guys, it turns out it's really good. This is a smartly written, well-crafted, complex, but never confusing Spider-Man film. It successfully caps off this trilogy and immediately makes it the best trilogy of Spider-Man movies ever. Okay, well, the amazing films weren't really a trilogy because they never got that far because they kind of fell on their face. But the point is, Tom Holland's trilogy has secured its place in the history of the character. And frankly... If there was never another Spider-Man film after this one, I feel like this is satisfying enough and does so much that I would be fine with it. And from what I gathered when we walked out of the theater, you pretty much felt the same, right, Alex? Yeah, I mean, now, I personally, I'm still wrapping my head around how I feel about the ending. And the thing is, it's not even like the ending was a bad ending. They wrote what I think they should have wrote, but I'm still not sure how much I like that anyway. Um, but nonetheless, the movie itself has so many fantastic things in it that whether or not I ultimately like the ending, this is still a movie that I would in fact highly recommend. Absolutely. Uh, my problems with it, it is partially not being sure quite how to feel about the direction these shows to take because, well, this is a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, so we don't know maybe what the big picture is because they have future plans for everything they do. But in terms of the movie itself, if I had to pick out a flaw, it would be that I felt the first two of the new Spider-Man trilogy did a really good job of being like comedies where they would naturally integrate the jokes and the humor into the narrative. While with Spider-Man No Way Home, it does do that sometimes, but it starts to be a little too much like some of the other Marvel movies. And by that I mean that there's moments in this film where the story stops entirely, so the characters can sort of make jokes for a few minutes. And in this movie, it has some pretty hard-hitting moments, so the levity is important. I just felt sometimes it felt a little forced to throw in jokes, but the movie does have a reason to stop and have character interactions, because there's some pretty interesting character interactions in this movie. So overall, though, I would, like Alex, highly recommend it, and you should definitely check it out if you even have the inkling of interest, and especially if you've seen the other movies. And with that out of the way, we're of course gonna get into discussing and analyzing some of the spoilers in the film. We're not gonna go the whole way through the story like we do with some movies, especially because this is a movie with a... <laughs> there's a lot in here. Yeah, there's so many moving parts in this one. So we're just gonna uh, cut through things that we kind of found interesting or things that... Or, or maybe flaws that aren't really able to be said without kind of talking about spoilers. So with that out of the way, we're gonna get into that as of now. When I say that this movie pays tribute to Spider-Man's legacy on screen, I mean that very, very literally, because, I mean, if you've seen the media kicking around, and you probably have heard about it already, this movie features 
Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield returning as Spider-Man, playing their universe versions of the characters and sort of connecting with the new Spider-Man and coming from their worlds. And they do some really cool and interesting things with that, not just for comedy of them interacting off of each other, but also dramatic things like taking dramatic moments that happen with those characters and tying it into the events of this movie, even sometimes capping off things that the original characters were never able to do in their trilogies. Yeah, and as far as uh, some of the unfinished stuff you were talking about, it takes from the Amazing Spider-Man movies and basically gets to redo a lot of the ending of Amazing Spider-Man 2. For that movie, it leads up to perhaps the most famous turning point in all of comics where Spider-Man, uh, his girlfriend, Gwen Stacy is dropped from a great height by the Green Goblin. And of course, in that movie, he dives down for her, catches her, uses his web to prevent their falling, but in the process, finds out that she has died. Granted, I am not a fan of the Amazing Spider-Man movies, so even if this moment in the, that movie was okay, I'm still not really endorsing the whole movie because nothing else around that works, in my opinion. But nonetheless, it's, it's a memorable moment from the film, and when they kind of touched on this in No Way Home, even I got a little bit emotional over that because there's a part where the William Dafoe Green Goblin knocks... MJ, who is basically the Mary Jane of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, off of a, I think off the Statue of Liberty we're still at, and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man sees this happen, jumps down, and saves her, making sure to be more careful <laughs> to not snap her neck in the process, and yeah, this was certainly a nice touch, and definitely this movie overall just brought some things that made me able to like the Andrew Garfield stuff better. Yeah, and just in terms of nostalgia, it was interesting and neat seeing these characters again. And, and you know, they don't just bring them back just for rekindling feelings, even though that's a large part of it. There is a purpose to the story, and there's a purpose to, like we said, kind of wrapping up elements of their characters that may not have been fully developed in their trilogies. Because, I mean, you know, they have the lizard in this from The Amazing Spider-Man, and originally, Tommy Maguire's Spider-Man was going to fight that lizard in a Spider-Man 4, and then that got pushed over to the Andrew Garfield movie. And it was interesting getting to see a lot of ideas that maybe they had for these other movies kind of be relived through the universes being smashed together. Yeah, definitely. Like you had mentioned earlier, some of their quips where they're comparing each other are funny and some of them are funny, but they're also very reasonable to bring up like Holland and Garfield are gushing over how mcguire shoots web naturally out of his hands instead of his web shooters and i mean it comes across very comedically but it's honestly something that they would honestly bring up if they knew about and even just little things like the part where the characters are sort of talking about which building in new york city they like to stand on top of to look around <laughs> and get a view of the city and and you know the one spider-man's like oh i like the chrysler building oh i like the empire state building it's like yeah like oh yeah that, that, that's a great view too you're right yeah like it's it's not something you'd really expect but it kind of makes sense for something that they would discuss <laughs> right and not just the different spider-mans across the different movie universes but they also do a lot with the villains they bring in villains from each of the different trilogies which if you've seen the trailer you can kind of get an idea of a couple of them and what surprised me was just the variety of them and also they you know they changed a lot of them to sort of in some ways retcon their versions from their movies 
mostly for the better. As a plot device, Doctor Strange is trying to do a spell so that everybody forgets Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but granted, in Peter's defense, Doctor Strange tries to do this spell, like, as soon as Peter requests it before actually talking it over with him, so Peter's trying to make a bunch of exceptions, and this apparently tears open a rift in the fabric of the multiverse, pulling in villains from other universes who knew that Peter Parker is Spider-Man inadvertently, and of course, for the, the sake of drama, it's not like Mary Jane that's getting pulled into this universe, it's various supervillains from the other two franchises. Three memorable villains from the, the Sam Raimi universe and two more from Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man franchise. Though granted, I was reading that, like I said, I haven't actually watched the Andrew Garfield movies for some time and I've only seen each film once, but I didn't think Electro knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man in that universe. And I read something else somewhere that it did seem to be somewhat of a plot hole. Granted, there are some explanations that might be able to counteract that if you assume that maybe he lives past that and finds out later, but I think they just really wanted to be able to reuse Electro and make him better here because it's the same actor and everything, but he is much better in this movie than he is in the previous movie. Yes, they not only change his personality, really, in the way that he acts, but also his overall design, where he's not blue. They kind of make a costume that's... It's not really like the comic book costume, which would have been way too goofy for live action, but it's something that's kind of like a homage to it that works well uh, for a live action world. In a lot of senses, I think it's about as close as they could get to the original costume, at least at points, without making it too goofy. Kind of like Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming. I mean, you obviously don't want to make that exactly like he looked in the comics, because he's one of the goofiest looking supervillains of all, but um, they pull that off in a way that makes sense and carries some seriousness with it. So, yeah, I was very happy with Electro in here, even pulling... Some of his attitudes from the previous movie, I do remember that he always wanted to have more attention paid to him, and he was jealous of people with more success, and uh, they, they, do, they do continue to use that in this character, and I, I, I definitely like it. Yep, yep, I'm seeing Alfred Molina again as Dr. Octopus. I mean, he's in some ways the highlight of the movie. A lot of people might argue William Defoe's Green Goblin is, depending on how much you like that interpretation of him, but basically Doc Ock serves as the main villain for the first half of the movie, even though he really only has one actual fight with Spider-Man. He's kind of the brains of the villains, even though they don't actually team up, so to speak, for most of the movie, but while they're all held in a little holding camp together. I mean, he's clearly the one who pulls all the weight, as he should be. For Dr. Octopus, in comics, is known as the head of the Sinister Six, as well as heading some other supervillain-esque organizations throughout his time. So it's fair that Doc Ock should pull a lot of weight here, which I feel he does. On the subject of the Sinister Six, as I mentioned, five supervillains come together to basically attack Spider-Man. Granted, not all at once, but there are scenes with all five of them together at least at once. And uh, If you've seen the Venom sequel, Let There Be Carnage, at the end, there is a teaser with Venom getting sucked into this multiverse, and 
Venom is not in this movie until the end credits. He doesn't do anything. It's just a setup for the symbiote. But I have to, I mean, I know, uh, Brandon, you said that you didn't really miss Venom in this movie. You kind of forgot because enough was happening. I was waiting the entire movie for Venom to join in so we could get the Sinister Six because then there would be six villains and they don't do that. And even if they didn't want to use Venom, I feel like they could have pulled in a number of other characters because there are other characters in these movies who learn Spider-Man's identity. Granted, it's another version of Venom or two more versions of Green Goblin. But at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2, they wanted a Sinister Six movie. They were clearly teasing that that was going to be their next idea and they don't do it. And it's been talked about for a long time. And I just really feel like this was a a greatly missed opportunity by not having one more character in it because this is just something Spider-Man is so famous for. Especially because by the time that the third act big climax fight scene is going on, there's really only four in the Sinister Four in this case because Dr. Octopus has been rehabilitated by this point, so he's more fighting with them because the, the interesting turn that this movie takes that the trailers kind of don't tell you intentionally is that this movie at first isn't really about Spider-Man fighting and defeating all of his villains. It's about commenting on the previous Spider-Man movies and how, despite the fact that in all those movies, Spider-Man is saying he wants to help the villains, ultimately they all end up dying at the end of their movies. Mm -hmm. So this film goes, okay, so instead of sending these characters back to their own universes where their fate is to die, why not try to rehabilitate them and help them with their issues before sending them back and having a better fate for all of these characters, which I think is a good idea and a smarter way to cap off this trilogy. It definitely works well for this, especially this young Spider-Man as somebody who wants hearing that they're going to return moments before they're doomed to die, wants to do everything to save them. I mean, that's a very Spider-Man-y thing to do, even if it means going against the, the plot master, Doctor Strange. Which leads to another scene I didn't really expect, which is a fight scene between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange is trying to prevent... In the, the mirror dimension, right? <laughs> yes, in the mirror dimension where Doctor Strange is trying to stop Spider-Man from uh, messing with his wish and fixing the villains. He believes this plan won't work. He needs to not mess around with multiverses and instead reset everything to the way they were. And that's the thing. In most movies, this whole idea would end with them resetting everything back to normal and resetting the status quo. But this movie actually treats that as a conflict. There's like a box where if you in the movie where if they hit the button it'll reset everything back to normal but the characters don't want that they want to make things better than simply resetting everything which i thought was great that's working against so many other movie tropes but yes this leads to a fight scene where dr strange is trying to get the box back from spider-man and it leads to this awesome awesome like great special effects fight scene of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange fighting in the mirror dimension where Doctor Strange can manipulate time and visuals and the environment around them any way he wishes as they fight. And there's some great uh, imagery in that part. It's a really good win for Spider-Man as well because it just goes to show that Spider-Man still has the chance to win basically just by using his brain, which I thought is pretty awesome. Yep, yep, he uses the power of math. <laughs> <laughs> to defeat Doctor Strange. It made a lot of sense to me because we just got through Spider-Man Far From Home, a movie where he beats a character whose whole gimmick is illusions. So it kind of makes sense that he'd be able to figure this out. I also thought it's kind of interesting that 
Spider-Man Far From Home is a movie where a villain is counting on the fact that people are ready to believe in a villain who comes from a multiple or from a like an alternate earth. That's kind of the illusion that he's pulling, even though he's not from an alternate earth. And then this movie literally pulls in a bunch of villains from an ultimate earth. I don't know if I necessarily like that immediately following, but I don't know. It's just kind of interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I think they even make note of that towards the beginning of the movie that, oh, these these characters actually are and like the multiverse really does exist because <laughs> there's a part in Far From Home where when Mysterio brings up multiverses and all that, Peter Parker's like, multiverses exist. And he's like having like a geek out about that whole thing. And then in this movie, oh, they actually do. <laughs> now, the weakest part in terms of the new characters they throw in to mix it around with this movie is the lizard and to be fair part of that is because alex and i as alex mentioned before don't have the highest opinion of the andrew garfield movies especially their villains and especially especially amazing spider-man 2 even though lizard is actually from amazing spider-man 1 but um brandon i know you haven't seen that movie for a while but you remember it fondly but you um particularly just like the way they had Spider-Man kind of crawling around and reacting to things. You don't really want to go back to it and actually see Lizard in that movie, as I recall. Yeah, like I liked Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man because they did focus a lot on his intelligence and him like doing science experiments in his house and stuff like that, which wasn't really something the Tobey Maguire's character ever really did. And on top of that, they focused a lot more on making Spider-Man and his movement and his abilities more spider-like. He was, even the way he crawled on walls had a more like spider-like look to it. And I, I just like that as just a different change to of a way to, in, to reinterpret the character. But in terms of the actual villains in the movies, no, all the villains in the Amazing Spider-Man movies were, to put it lightly, ridiculous and not good. And the lizard, I mean, the lizard's the really the only of the amazing Spider-Man villains in this movie, which the other would being Electro, where they don't really do anything with him. He's basically the same. Yeah, because a lot of them, they literally try to change up for this movie. They um change up Green Goblin's appearance, which we'll probably get into a little bit later because he's kind of the climactic villain in this. They change up Electro's appearance, as we mentioned. And with Green Goblin, it's kind of just because like he destroys part of his own costume in his madness with electro they mentioned that he's reacting differently to this earth than the earth he's from some in the way that he's absorbing the energy and they point out that he likes it here which i think is just a really neat little point to make once you travel to this alternate earth sandman is mostly in a sand form presumably for a similar reason that maybe he his body is reacting differently to this earth than the one he's from so he maybe isn't able to go back to his human form as easily but lizard no they don't do anything with him i don't know remember if he had such a goofy british type voice in the original movie but rather than trying to make him better they just try not to have him in this movie as much as the other villains i think he makes one-liners occasionally but they don't fit the character and yes alex he did that was the voice he had in the original movie because that, that that's the same actor doing the same thing it's uh they do have a bit of fighting with him during the third act climax of the movie but he's yeah just he was never really a great villain He's one of the only ones who doesn't get like a solo fight with spider-man in here because the first big battle is 
Tom Holland's Spider-Man versus Doc Ock on a bridge, which is really cool. Then it's Spider-Man versus Electro, and Sandman butts in a little bit, but it's still pretty personal between Spider-Man and Sandman. Uh, later on, we get a one-on-one Spider-Man versus Green Goblin, which is really cool. But um, basically, Doctor Strange just points out that he found Lizard crawling around in the sewers and teleported him to his alternate dimension supervillain jail basement, and that's pretty much it. (laughs) No screen time, which I don't think is a problem because there's already a lot of battling in this, and I really wasn't saying, oh man, I get to see another battle with this version of the Lizard in it. Sorry, Lizard. And I mean, the writers themselves, Alex, know how the perception of the Amazing Spider-Man villains has been over time. Because there's many lines in this movie where they're making fun of Amazing Spider-Man and making fun of the ridiculousness of its villains, whether it's the lizard's plan to turn the city and all of its people into giant lizards, or how Electro's origin if anybody remembers Amazing Spider-Man 2, and if you don't, I, I envy you. Brandon and I have spent many a night discussing this for hours, even though there's really nothing to discuss. It's just stupid. Yes, that Electro's origin is that he fell into a vat of electric eels, experimental <laughs> electric eels, and that gave him electric powers. <laughs> And I was so, it almost felt like a relief when the characters in this movie bring that up and make fun of it because it's something that Alex and I, as Alex said, have talked about for so long. And it's like, yes, <laughs> they they know. <laughs> yeah, they even reference it several times, not just once, I think. Uh, they have a, a really nice little exchange between Electro and Sandman where Electro's like, yeah, I fell into a vat of eels. And Sandman's like... Yeah, I fell into this energy converter and got my DNA mixed with sand. And then they're like, yeah, you gotta really watch where you fall. Yeah. And when they do it again, it's with Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, who brings it up, saying that, oh yeah, he he fell into a vat of eels. And Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, just completely, just nonchalant, just very, like, monotone, just goes, yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) (sighs) Yes, a lot of smart writing, a lot of good character interactions, and a lot of just intelligence and detail put into understanding the continuity of these movies. Yes, yes, Electro didn't know Peter was Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man 2, and that is a flaw, but I think that's the only thing in this movie that they break continuity on. I think they just really needed to give Electro another chance, and they'd rather have Electro in here than, like, three Green Goblins. I don't think they want to acknowledge Harry Osborn Green Goblin from Amazing Spider-Man 2 who became a goblin through contracting the goblin's disease that turned him green. Guys, guys, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is terrible. Just, just, just putting it out there. But Oh man, when we watched that movie together, I've only seen it once and I watched it with Brandon, but honestly, it kind of felt like, it kind of made me feel the way I felt when I watched Batman and Robin with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, Um, which is not a bad experience. I mean, I almost endorse you to watch that film again but it's just so ridiculous that you'll be laughing at it the whole time yeah like batman and robin's bad but it's also entertaining because it it at least keeps a consistent tone as to what it is amazing spider-man 2 is entertaining just because it's all over the place it never really decides what it wants to be and the choices it makes with its villains and characters are just some of the most ridiculous i've seen in a superhero movie and just because the writing is bad and there's just a lot of things in the logic of the characters and the decisions they make 
that feel less like a, a narrative and a story that makes sense and more just a bunch of scenes strung together of these plots that should have been in like different movies. And to be fair, one of the key things that Brandon and I made fun of in that movie that almost seems to be contradicted here is that the amazing Spider-Man is friends with Harry Osborn and Harry Osborn keeps asking him to help him create some sort of cure for Goblin's disease because it's going to kill him. But Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man is unwilling to give him this cure that he's basically made because it could kill him. But he's going to die anyways. I don't know what he's waiting for. I, I don't know, but maybe he did learn his lesson in that movie. So maybe now he's more willing to test out cures on some of the characters. Because uh, a key element to this movie, actually, Spider-Man No Way Home, is that the three Spider-Men are trying to cure the supervillains. And again, it's pretty easy to remove the chip from Dr. Octopus. That's simple. Um, they make a energy thing to suck away Electro's energy power. They find a way to cure Sandman somehow. And granted, these would all be pretty hard to achieve, but since they do have Stark Industry technology and three geniuses, maybe that would be possible. But that contrast just stuck out to me that they're willy-nilly on curing these characters, but Andrew Garfield was so hesitant to in his own movie. Yeah, yeah, that, that felt in some ways a response to that. Now, I know you had a bit of a problem with them just being able to cure Green Goblin. Yeah, because the other characters, to be fair, had physical problems where, you know, their body is mixed with DNA from lizards or sand particles or things like that. But Green Goblin, okay, granted, he does have enhanced strength and abilities. I don't know if that's actually what they were getting at, but I think they're implying that they cure him of that as well, his madness. Even with Stark technology, I don't, I'm not sure how easily you could cure that guy have his madness it's essential to the plot almost like more essential to the plot than for any other character that they can cure him but i don't feel like one injection would be enough to to fix that mess of a man did did you have issue with that in the moment of the movie, I wasn't really thinking about it just because the movie's well executed. But when I actually think about continuity, Norman Osborn's not a good person. Like, even before he gets injected with the formula, he's an awful father and, you know, a, a bad guy. <laughs> a horrible father and crazy businessman before all the extra madness. But um, I can maybe buy that he is a better person without the goblin now than he was before he even had the goblin because i feel like the formula messed up his mind so much that he has a lot of things going on in his head this might not even be the standard norman osborne that is trying to help spider-man come up with these cures um but another point you point out though is as he's trying to help william defoe is just even when he's being the good norman osborne he just conducts himself so menacingly that it's almost hard to believe peter is on board to help him or to, to take his assistance i mean it's not impossible to believe but it just makes it a little bit difficult at times yes like for me i get that they're going for like a jekyll and hyde type thing where he switches back to norman osborne but because of who william defoe is it's a similar thing to, like, Jack Nicholson. Even when he's trying to play, like, the nice guy at first, he just always seems like a crazy madman. <laughs> or that he's restraining something back from <laughs> in himself. Yeah. I mean, which Norman Osborn would be doing. He, in some senses, may still be restraining that Green Goblin. 
or Green Goblin may be allowing itself to be restrained, I'm not sure, but I definitely liked the madness of his character in this movie, and he definitely stands out, once again, as a villain. A lot of people I heard were raving that he outdoes his performance in the initial movie in this movie. I could see that. I would need to see the original Spider-Man again. I haven't seen the Tobey Maguire trilogy in so long, but the thing I do remember about the Green Goblin in the comics or in any piece of media is that whenever he shows up, most likely he's going to take one of Spider-Man's family members or, or people that are close to him with him. They capture a lot of elements from the comics with the little bit of Green Goblin here. Not directly, but um, in the comics, Green Goblin is known for putting Aunt May into the hospital. And there's a scene where Aunt May gets attacked, which I'll actually elaborate on further. And that's thanks to Green Goblin. The fact that he turns good and gets kind of a cloudy mind is also canon with the comics because at points Green Goblin got amnesia and slowly rediscovered his madness. Granted, it's not slow here, but again, I feel like that is also a nice nod to the comics. Um, and then, of course, throwing MJ off the bridge is similar to throwing Gwen Stacy off the bridge in the comics, which I mentioned with uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2's scene. And then, yeah, it happens again here pretty much. And this is something I found pretty interesting, just in terms of how they decided to pan out the, the origin story and the continuity of Tom Holland's Spider-Man where we get a scene where Norman Osborn goes back to being the Goblin, and he almost, like, convinces the other villains to turn on Peter. And so then a big fight scene ensues, they all escape, and Green Goblin kills Aunt May. He actually kills him with his glider in the same way that he himself died in the original Spider-Man movie. Yeah, and this is a very impactful scene. Literally, in this movie, Aunt May is Uncle Ben. She's the one who prompts Peter to try to rescue every single supervillain and not give up on any of them. Uh, she is his moral light and the relative that speaks to him uh, throughout the movie. And shortly before dying, of course, after she gets injured, gets back up and gives him the little with great power comes great responsibility spiel. And then dramatically allows death to overtake her and even though there had been a lot of comedic scenes shortly before this not, i mean not super shortly but yeah it is a very strong scene in power it might be even stronger than when they did the origin stuff in the original sam raimi movie from 2002 um it, it, it is very very impactful especially because this is a multiverse movie so when this happens you know this of course, destroys Tom Holland, and he is not doing anything at this point. He's just sort of sitting on buildings, not really sure what to do with himself now, and of course crying. And this is when they decide to throw in Tommy McGuire and Andrew Garfield into the movie, because they then use their experiences from their origin stories to talk him down from his situation, which works really well. Yeah, they're basically his moral compasses and his spiritual guides in here in a very literal sense. Yeah, it feels weird. It's bringing in other Spider-Mans from other movies to set up the origin for this Spider-Man. In like his, what, like fifth or sixth appearance between the other Spider-Man movies and adventure movies? Yes. This is when they finally decide to do the Uncle Ben scene. And that's the thing. When I saw Homecoming and they didn't do the origin story in that movie, I thought it was just because they just, you know, it happened off screen. Get past it and it was implied, yeah. And then, um, of course, there's the whole point where you almost see Iron Man taking on this Uncle Ben type figure for Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And being killed at the end of Endgame. And then you get that scene in Spider-Man Far From Home where 
Mysterio is causing his illusions and the zombie Iron Man comes out of the grave after Spider-Man saying something about how Spider-Man couldn't do enough to save him or something like that. And that almost made me feel like, yeah, this is what they're going with in this franchise. But no, that, that's not the end of it. No, there is no Uncle Ben. He never actually existed in this universe. Instead, it's in his fifth movie appearance, <laughs> Tom Holland's Spider-Man learns the great power and great responsibility spiel from Aunt May before she dies. Which is interesting because, you know, in the previous movies, he is kind of still Spider-Man. He is still, like, making choices and using his discretion to try to do things for the best. But I guess this is the one where... But here it works to set up his origin because then it ends up very well setting up yeah. the movie's ending in terms of the choices Tom Holland makes to make big sacrifices to save others so the ending of course has tom holland and the other spider-mans teaming up on the statue of liberty to fight against sandman electro lizard and well green goblin later uh, oh yeah okay yeah green goblin later meanwhile dr octopus has actually joined their team and fights with them a little bit, which is kind of cool. I mean, granted, I, I would have sort of liked to see another fight with Doc Ock, but it just kind of also shows that as the most with-it villain of all, he's the, the only one strong enough to fight for the side of good at this point. It's a, it's a weird sort of nod to him as a villain by having him be the one who joins him as a hero, but it, it works all right. I still think they could have shown a little bit more of him helping them maybe because, I mean, everybody knows that pretty much everybody loves Doc Ock is what I'm getting at. But um, back to the point, Tom Holland Spider-Man, who I think they dub Peter One when the three Spider-Men try to figure out how to refer to each other because they all keep thinking that like they're Peter Parker or Spider-Man. Green Goblin, you know, drops MJ from the thing and Andrew Garfield saves her and this prompts us to get to a scene where it's just Tom Holland versus William Defoe, Spider-Man versus Green Goblin. And it's very dramatic. Goblin is being as evil as ever, and Tom Holland, knowing that this version of Green Goblin has killed his aunt, is fighting harder than ever to a point where he's punching him and punching him to a point where he seems like he is, in fact, interested in killing this character. What did you think of that? I was surprised that he went as hard as he did because I felt like in the previous scenes they were doing their best to talk him down. But, you know, I'm sure the Green Goblin enraged him again. And so he yeah, he beats down right. and, it's, and it ends up being Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man that stops him from actually trying to impale the Goblin with his own glider once again and thus kind of undoing what he's worked to build up with helping them throughout the movie. It works well because a Spider-Man stops Spider-Man from going too far. But in another sense, I think it's kind of strange that after this whole sequence happened, he was willing to kill the character, presumably. Again, it works very well cinematically, but it just leaves me with a bit of a strange feeling. Because even in the 2002 Spider-Man, though Uncle Ben's killer does die, it is not because Spider-Man goes too hard at him, but I think he backs up and falls out a window on his own, conveniently killing himself, much like most supervillains in these Spider-Man movies. But uh, no, this would have been very intentional if another Spider-Man hadn't stepped in in front of this Spider-Man of our movie to prevent this. And it makes total sense for Tobey Maguire specifically 
to be the Spider-Man that stops him and stops the glider, especially. <laughs> sure, with uh, his relation to Green Goblin in those movies. And then, of course, Andrew Garfield jabs him with hands over the cure, and um, Tom Holland jabs the Green Goblin and cures him of his goblin madness. <laughs> just, just cures his mental illness, just that easy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this leads to the universe basically breaking open and other villains pouring through the multiverses and Doctor Strange trying to stop it. S so wait, what was Doctor Strange's plan at first before Peter makes his decision? Or was Doctor Strange just not able to hold it back? Yeah, basically he was just holding it back as long as he could, I think, because a rift had been opened and other universe characters who knew Spider-Man's identity were pouring in. So he was just trying to hold it back as long as he could. He returns at the end of the movie. Basically, after that battle with Spider-Man, he's stuck in the mirror dimension for most of the rest of the movie, but he comes back and points out that the multiverse universe thing is collapsing in on itself. Which is a pretty big, dramatic event to be a finale in this Spider-Man movie, I have to admit. Probably the biggest of any Spider-Man movie, which I guess is fitting. But ultimately, what Tom Holland decides, and kind of the twist that I don't think either Alex or I were really expecting the movie to go, is that he goes, make everybody all over the world forget who Peter Parker is. And that should fix things because then nobody will know him or, you know, be able to come after him or the people he knows and loves. But at the same time, it means his girlfriend and nobody else will know him. But he makes that decision. Right. His girlfriend, his good friend Ned Leeds, Doctor Strange himself, the other Spider-Men. And Doctor Strange himself is even hesitant to do this because he's, you know, grown to like Peter over time from the experiences they've had together throughout the other movies. But Peter makes this decision. He does promise Ned and MJ that he will come back and re-explain who he is once this all happens. But he goes through with it and... When he does finally go to see Ned and MJ after everyone's minds are wiped of his existence, they do something interesting here where Peter decides he's actually not going to tell his friends who he is. He's just going to let them live their own lives. Yeah, the reason behind this is he walks in at the coffee shop that Mary Jane, I, okay, excuse me, MJ is working at. I guess they make it distinct that her name is MJ and not Mary Jane in this universe. But um, MJ and Ned Leeds are at the coffee shop talking about their college applications and how they got accepted. At the beginning of the movie, part of what really prompts Peter to want to wipe everybody's mind is that the fact that they know him makes them too controversial to be accepted to the college they were looking at. And he sees that now they're not too controversial. They can achieve what they want to in life. And they also see MJ has a lot more positive of an attitude at the beginning of the movie. She comes up with this phrase like, if you expect disappointment, you will never be disappointed. In this world, it's implying that, that she did not develop this sort of a mindset in her life. He thinks that their lives are much better without him, honestly. So he seems to be going against his promise to come find them and remind them of everything they've gone through. Yeah, he decides to let them walk their own paths and probably a much safer path instead of being trapped with him and the sacrifices he has to make as Spider-Man, which, yeah, we weren't really sure quite how to feel about all of this at first when this happened, but 
as I began to think about it more, I began to like it a lot because I realized, oh yeah, so like no nobody knows who he is now. He lives in an apartment on his own. And the whole thing about Spider-Man and what has made him such a relatable character for all of these movie franchises and on top of that, all of these decades and decades and decades of comics is that he's a guy. He works very small crimes in very small situations. He's Spider-Man is more about the dilemma of deciding between whether he's going to go to a party or whether he's going to fight a supervillain. He's a very relatable, small-time sort of superhero, and reducing him to such a small and probably his smallest level, to me, is makes the most sense for a place to leave him. Yeah, for instance, throughout these movies, with his connections to Iron Man and Stark Industries, he has, like, these Iron Man-esque spider suits. So at the, the first real big battle in this movie against Doc Ock, it, it is a pretty challenging fight while Doc Ock's tossing cars at him, but eventually gets one of his tentacles on Spider-Man and, and rips off a bit of Spider-Man's suit. So the nanotechnology takes over Doc Ock's tentacles, allowing Spider-Man to kind of pilot the arms. So after this point where Spider-Man is completely on his own, I don't think Tom Holland's Spider-Man would be able to take down Doc Ock so easy. I mean, in fact, he definitely couldn't have won that battle at all. It'd be hard to escape with his life, but he definitely wouldn't have won. He'd have to come back after he learned more about Doc Ock, if anything. That's kind of a big difference I would have even noticed within this movie itself of how that went down versus how it would have gone down after all this. Yes, it takes away the Stark legacy and the Stark technology from Spider-Man and kind of just makes him Spider-Man now. <laughs> it was well written with the rest of the movie. I'm not saying it wasn't. Personally, I still, it's not exactly sitting well with me that Spider-Man's ultimate sacrifice was through magic, even if that was how the whole setup of this movie unrolled. I didn't mind that, but I kind of didn't like Spider-Man resolving the entire movie through magic, even if it was, again, him using his brain, that this is a way he could resolve this problem. Well, at the very least, Alex, the other things he does in this movie are set in stone. The villains being helped and the choices he makes with the other characters, those at least have purpose and it isn't all just a reset. A lot of it is a reset, though, because the events of every other movie presumably are no longer canon with anybody else in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they're going to find some ways around this and some magic dude or dude from another dimension is going to know something. Um, but I just, I don't, I, like, I felt really bad for him by the end of the movie. Like, because not only does this mean that he lo loses his friends and family, but I mean, because he's also just lost his Aunt May. He's like still finishing up as a senior in high school and somehow, and he has no money and no friends, and no family, and he's living on his own in a dingy apartment, I guess supporting himself already, again with no emotional connections for the time being, even though I'm sure they could write their way out of it later if they wanted to. But he's just literally given up everything for the entire universe and won't get as much as a single thinks. I mean, that kind of is the story of Spider-Man, but part of it is that typically he's had like his Aunt May or at times MJ or Harry Osborn or somebody to at least talk to but at this point he literally has nobody and that's just how it ends yeah and despite all that there is that moment when he gets his new apartment and he's looking around it and there's this gloomy look on his face at first but then when he puts down his clothing and his suitcase and all that on top of the sink and he he like smiles for a moment and it seems like the idea is is that he's 
accepted that he made the right decision despite the sacrifice. He feels he has chosen the right path and it is sad, but I'm sure he'll make new friends and I'm sure, you know, not all of it will be bad, (laughs) but it's Spider-Man. Bad things will probably still happen to him. (laughs) I mean, he might make new friends, I guess. I don't know, because when I watched it, I kind of also thought about the previous movie, how he said he just wanted to live a normal life for a while as Peter Parker and go on vacation with his friends. But I'm sort of under the impression that without... Yeah, because they they made him forget Spider-Man and Peter Parker because his friends don't remember Peter Parker either. So nobody remembers him. Like, I almost don't know if they don't remember who he is, like if how people would even have his records on file at this point. Maybe that was just me diving too far into it, though. Well, the podcast is called Overthinking Movies, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this choice is one of those things where it's hard to exactly make a full opinion of it because it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's probably plans down the line of why they're making this choice. Sure. So it almost, in some senses, doesn't feel like a super complete narrative because there's probably a, a direction this is going, which, to be fair, is very similar to a comic book because usually, especially the old Amazing Spider-Man comics, would always end <laughs> sort of with a monologue setting up a future story. Right, right. I mean, I would say, though, that this one does not directly set up what's to come next with Spider-Man, though. it's um, The end credits give you a taste of what's next for Doctor Strange, but even if there's more to come, you could definitely feel like this is the end of a trilogy. This is what Spider-Man gets for now. Yeah, and they'll probably lay back on Spider-Man for a little while, which, frankly, I, I, I think I'm fine with. Yeah, I, I mean, because honestly, at this point, too, we've seen more of Spider-Man's mainstream villains on the big screen than we have not seen. Yeah, this has been... This movie, in many ways, is almost like the climax of every Spider-Man movie all put in one. There's Right. At this point, I don't even know what Spider-Man stories I'd even want to be told on the big screen anymore. If they take a break from Spider-Man for a while after this, I'm totally fine with that. Of course, we do see that the Venom symbiote, as I mentioned earlier, is now in this world. If you think about this too, this is also really strange. If you did watch Venom Let There Be Carnage, this, the fact that he's been sucked into this universe to not do anything, but the fact that he's been sucked into it implies that that version of the Venom symbiote knows Spider-Man is Peter Parker, even though it comes from a world that Spider-Man doesn't seem to exist in. And the fact that this same Venom who knows who Spider-Man is in a world where Spider-Man doesn't seem to exist gets that version of the symbiote into this universe. I don't know if that means they would plan to just skip the whole symbiote Spider-Man thing in this universe. I don't know what they would really be... Right, because it's already been done in Spider-Man 3. Right, because it's already been done for us as viewers, and it's implied to be already done in that universe, I guess? Unless that symbiote had already been in multiple universes? I, I don't really understand. Yeah, I don't know quite what they're going with it, but I assume that they're not just going to repeat previous stories. They're going to do something else with the symbiote. Yeah. What that is, I guess we'll just have 
to see. Unless it's going to be going on in the background in another upcoming movie because Sony is in the works for a Morbius movie and a Kraven the Hunter movie. You could have Symbiote Spider-Man in the background of those movies if you wanted. Uh, I don't think it's happening with Morbius because the trailers are already... You know, it, it still could happen in the background, but they could go through this whole arc in the background of another movie, so we don't have to go through the whole thing again. But again, it, it still seems weird if the symbiote has probably itself already done this arc, and then supposedly the exact same thing's going to happen to it once it bonds with this Spider-Man. I don't know. Yeah, it's... It's hard to say what any of their ideas are yet. They've kept it sort of vague enough with their choices that... I'm not really sure, but I will say, overall, No Way Home is a really, really good Spider-Man movie. Is it my favorite of all of them? <laughs> I, to be frank, I think I like Homecoming better, but I think I just like it more as a smaller story. Yeah, that, that was sort of my problem with the ending, too. Like, even with five villains pulled in from alternate dimensions... I wish that it could have ended smaller but accomplished a similar thing that this larger scale ending accomplished and again accomplished it at a smaller scale but um no even despite that I still recommend this and even if you're a kind of person who doesn't really like alternate reality movies I can still recommend this because um, there's enough good in just the events once they happen through the bulk of the movie to just sit back and enjoy these five villains challenging spider-man and a lot of the comedy that actually comes with the villains once they've all been captured um just interacting with each other and making quips and kind of being like these five stooges they're bumbling around in uh, an apartment trying to get cured yeah i mean there is a lot of great stuff in this movie and there is a lot of stuff in this movie to be sure there's not really a lot of bad stuff but there's a lot of stuff that you might not agree with, but it's still good. Yeah, like this idea, this whole concept for this movie feels like it could have gone and became a Spider-Man 3 or an Amazing Spider-Man 2 where there's so much packed into it that it becomes a mess or has a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff that doesn't work or is poorly executed. But it is commendable that no, this movie completely works for what it's going for. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, if you listen to this point, you probably already saw the movie. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, and I'm happy that we have finally a full Spider-Man trilogy where every movie is very strong and also just captures the character well. Good drama, good action, good comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not much else to say other than we're happy. So... Thank you for uh, going to see it with me, Alex, and uh, participating in this discussion because yep. this was a lot to go through. <laughs> yep. I mean, I've been excited, as have many of you, I'm sure. I've been waiting for this movie most of the year, so it did not disappoint. Thank you for listening to our discussion, and from the looks of the date of when this one is being uploaded, uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, or whatever you celebrate. Or if you don't celebrate anything, just have a good day and try to stay safe. If you have feedback or suggestions for topics or episode ideas you have for this podcast, you can send all those to overthinkingmoviespodcast at gmail.com. 
And for more episodes of Overthinking Movies, as well as the other podcasts that are made by my team of talented co-workers, you can find those at goldhitswkva.com, wchx1055.com, and star967.com by clicking on the Podcast tab. You can also find Overthinking Movies on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and pretty much any app you can find podcasts on. And that's a wrap on the first year of Overthinking Movies episodes. Wow. I might try to put out a Christmas episode or of some sort before the year ends, but most likely you can consider this a wrap on the first year of Overthinking Movies. It's been really fun making this podcast and trying to figure out what it's going to mold into over time. As far as I'm concerned, we're still trying to find our place. But if you've been listening, I hope the ride so far has been fun. And I hope you'll join us next year for another round of Overthinking Movies, where next year, maybe, possibly, we might finally put out the Goalies 3 episode. Zach and I have been trying to get our schedules to line up, and it's just not quite getting there, but it will happen. The world is highly anticipating a review of Goalies 3, Goalies Go to College, and it must happen. <laughs> Take care.